Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Date Escape. I'm your host, Cassandra Ryder. Today's episode is sponsored by Aged and Infused. Welcome to another episode that comes to you from the grueling heat of summer in Arizona. Uh, I can't really even describe the amount of sweat that I am experiencing currently at this moment, and I've been inside an AC building for about a half hour. Today's episode is going to be a little different than the others, and it requires me to give a content warning right up top. Both bad date stories today contain the theme of sexual assault. And so if you find yourself maybe more sensitive to that topic and maybe just like right now when you're listening is not a good time, you're feeling a little more sensitive, a little more vulnerable, uh, I encourage you to skip this episode in its entirety. Maybe you come back to it at a time when you're feeling more grounded. But I wanted to make sure that folks knew that up top before we kind of really get into what I call the dark side of dating. Now, I know a lot of the bad date stories that I've covered in this podcast have had a more humorous kind of effect from the stories. Uh, It's one of my favorite things about bad date stories is the fact that we can, you know, laugh at the absurdity of humans. We can laugh at how strange we are as humans sometimes, how awkward dating is. But I find that bad dates occur on a spectrum. And so there's kind of two polar opposites that bad dates can kind of revolve around. On one side is like the ha-ha, you know, best case scenario, like while it's disappointing, while it's embarrassing, you know, we get to move through it and hopefully through the help of laughter with ourselves, with our friends, with our community at large. And on the other end is trauma. I think there's no better way to kind of describe what the most negative effect of dating could be. Um, besides death, obviously, which in some cases does happen, unfortunately, with bad dates, Uh, you know, but trauma at large can be another kind of response or effect that we can be left with after it happens, especially when sexual assault or unconsensual touching, fondling, sexual activity is involved as well. And so that's the theme that we're going to dive into today. I know it's maybe not the most joyful topic to think about and and learn about. But, you know, in my years of researching not only bad dates, but also uh, survivors of sexual assault and rape, their experiences dating post-assault, it's much more common that unfortunately uh, many people let themselves believe. This experience of, you know, having unwanted sexual contact or just unwanted any physical contact on a date, which I find so particularly harmful and tragic and painful to think about because especially when you kind of think about like dating, when you're dating someone, you are hopeful, you are hopefully excited. There's all this newness, there's all this potential that you're kind of thinking about and kind of consumed with. And then to have that interjected with violence and harm and trauma, I think is just one of the most cruel ironies that can happen um, in someone's dating life. And so we have two bad date stories that involve people who had those experiences while dating, while searching for connection. And I have some research that I'd like to share to kind of contextualize this conversation. I hope to leave us on a more positive note. But again, take care when listening to this episode. I definitely think and hope for more, well, let me back up. I don't hope for anyone to have bad date experiences where sexual assault is involved. However, because in my personal experience and also in my research, I know it to be very common. As folks feel comfortable doing so, I I open the floor for sharing more of these experiences on this platform. I think it is crucially important to kind of uh, speak to this, uh, create awareness about the harms of dating especially for folks of certain marginalized identities, um, more vulnerable identities. And I would like to use this podcast as a platform to 
you know, spread this message and create awareness. So I, I can't promise this will be the last episode about this topic, but, you know, certainly I, I don't want to make anyone feel uncomfortable with feeling like I need them to share their traumatic stories on this podcast. So if any of these stories resonate with your own personal experience of experiencing bodily, emotional, sexual harm on a date with somebody, and if you feel comfortable sharing your story, I would be most honored to kind of hold space for that story, to treat it with respect, to treat it as severe harm onto a person and to help use research to kind of rationalize and make sense of how this happens, why this happens, and how we can move past it. So with all that said, I'm going to dive into the first listener story that we have for today. This listener uh, emailed in uh, his story, and so here we go. The email begins with, Hey Cassandra, this is B. he, him pronouns. I have just a plethora of interesting date experiences, both on the side of the other person and me. First of all, I think it's important to contextualize a few things. One, I'm a bigger bodied queer dude. Dating as a bigger person is wild. It definitely could be its own podcast theme and probably already is. And I can only imagine it's even more intense for someone who lives in a more femme presenting bigger body. Two, there's a trigger warning for sexual assault in the first story. I feel like sexual assault isn't talked about enough ever, but especially when it's against someone mask presenting. And I hope that if someone has gone through it, Hearing this will, if nothing else, at least make them feel less alone in the experience. I had just gotten off a terrible shift at work on a random weekday, and although I usually only visited bars socially and rarely, I needed a drink to process the day. I went to a gay dive bar relatively close to where I was living, and it was dead. I sat at the bar and ordered a beer. After a few sips and a few moments of just staring at the wall, a gentleman came and sat next to me and started chatting me up. Truthfully, I wasn't really in the mood. But my self-esteem wasn't the greatest at this point in my life, and I figured if someone had the guts enough to just come up and talk to me, they must be interested. And then in parentheses, randomly meeting someone in a bar and chatting can be considered a date of sorts, right? Side note, yes, and more on that later. Okay, back to the story. I couldn't tell you a single thing we talked about, but it eventually shifted from the, so, what do you do for work type of questions, to the, what are you into sexually? stuff. That was the furthest thing from my mind, and I realized that perhaps they weren't so much interested in me as I was just there, alone, and can only assume seemed like an easy target. I just shut down, stopped looking at him, and started answering his questions very coldly and short, focusing more on my now warm beer. The questions stopped, and we just sat there for a moment, when he made his move, reached over, and grabbed my crotch. Apparently, I was playing hard to get. I looked him right in the eye, pushed his arm away, and told him I wasn't interested. He scoffed and moved on. I paid and left, now in an even worse mood than when I started. Now, at the time, that type of behavior, at least from my very limited view of the world, wasn't that uncommon and was probably 99% of the time welcome in a gay bar. I felt pretty violated, though. Never went to a bar alone again. I first of all want to take a moment to thank this listener, B, for so bravely sharing this story with us. I think you speak on such important themes, and I, I really, truly appreciate you trusting me with this opportunity to share your story and to really and really center the harm that can come from these painful experiences, these unwanted experiences. I think the concept of identifying what a date is is so varied. You know, academics have so many different definitions that they use personally to describe what a date is. And mostly it kind of revolves around this idea that someone intentionally sets up an, an event between two people, I would also like to say, or more, uh, and, and then that kind of considers 
a date with the anticipation of there being some sort of romantic sexual attraction, something more than platonic. Now, I am here to kind of think about dates that involve kind of these spur of the moment events, you know, meeting someone at a bar. It can absolutely feel like as meaningful as an experience as someone, you know, beforehand setting up a date with somebody saying, let's meet at this bar at this time, let's have a drink, and then, you know, we'll make plans for next time. So I I, I am so here, B, for your experience kind of fitting in to a date, absolutely. Even if you met someone randomly at a bar, I think it can definitely turn into a date. Now, one of the most painful things about this story for me personally is B feeling like he was an easy target. You know, anyone sitting alone at a bar, there are so many reasons that can kind of explain why someone is doing that. Uh, In B's case, he had a hard day at work. He wanted to have a drink to process the day. Maybe was open to talking with other people, but from his story, it didn't really sound like that. Other people might go alone to a bar hoping to meet someone as well. There are so many different potential reasons as to why someone would be alone at a bar. Now, for other people to assume when someone is alone at a bar that that means that they are open, you know, automatically to sexual questions or, you know, relational development, I think is a horrible assumption on the part of other people. I am here to create a world where we can kind of expand how we approach people just in general, but especially people who are maybe alone at a bar and to not automatically assume that that means someone is down for maybe casual sex or even just like a romantic relationship or truly just any type of communication. Like I think the world should encompass the reality of people to want to sit at a bar alone, have a drink, and then leave and not feel violated. So what I think is important about B's story is that it is absolutely sexual assault. I think nonverbal communication is so often overlooked in dating, also communication at large, but especially in dating. And there are so many moments in B's story where he points out how he was given clear nonverbal communication uh, that indicated he was not interested in this conversation, or at least the shift that this conversation had. B notes that he was, you know, shutting down, coldly and shortly giving answers to someone's question, maybe not even making eye contact, you know, focusing on his warm beer. If I'm putting myself in the shoes of the other person and I notice someone giving me kind of these pretty clear nonverbal cues of not wanting to engage in this conversation, I would hope that the other person would be aware and kind of maybe use that opportunity to self-monitor a little bit, which we've talked about in previous episodes. So self-monitoring is kind of being aware of how you're communicating and taking a moment internally to pause and say, hmm, is this going the way that I want it to go? And in this case, asking yourself, am I potentially making someone uncomfortable? If the answer is yes and or unclear, we have to address that. And then stopping whatever is seemingly making the other person feel uncomfortable. I think just this awareness of how we might be communicating towards others, at best case, unintentionally, at worst case, intentionally in a in kind of an aggressive way. Uh, you know, we have to move, we have to move past that. We have to bring more awareness to picking up on the nonverbal cues of other people, especially when thinking about the act of grabbing someone's genitals, you know, in a public place, no matter let me back up. Grabbing someone's genitals anywhere unconsensually is wrong. And such a bold move for this other person to do when, again, B was giving these clear signals of not being interested. And then what happens? Harm, trauma, sexual assault. Now, I know giving the solution of communication doesn't fully capture the nuance and complexity of sexual assault prevention. 
And also, as a communication researcher, I do advocate for people trying their best to prescribe to more direct communication. In this case, B absolutely did that, you know, said I wasn't interested, pushed this guy's hands away, and this person got the message then. Do I think this message could have been received by the other person much sooner in this interaction? Absolutely. Absolutely. To help me fall asleep at night, I always try to think about realities where someone is just truly unaware. And I know that can happen when people are unaware of like picking up on other people's cues. There are so many other reasons that explain why someone might experience that. But I think that cultivating more awareness of this is so important. There is so much research that details how important nonverbal communication is. A range of research articles say that nonverbal communication makes up from anywhere to 60 to 80 percent of our communicative messages. And so it is so much more than just the words that we say. And I think when, if we're trying to be better daters, uh, better suitable partners for people who are maybe looking for finding connection with people, we have to be so attuned. Or I think it is so important for people to be attuned to prioritizing being aware of their own nonverbal and verbal communication and also wanting to be aware of what other nonverbal communication they are picking up from other people. And what I tell my students too is that if the nonverbal communication is so ambiguous, Like there are, like I always make the joke where it's like, if someone sees me winking at them across the room, on one hand, I definitely could be trying to like flirt. On the other hand, like maybe my contact fell out of my eye and I'm just trying to like, you know, find it or, you know, bring it back into focus. So nonverbal communication is so ambiguous. And I always tell my students, whenever there is some doubt or there is some confusion around the nonverbal cues you're getting from someone, I'm always a fan of direct communication about it. For example, you know, in the winking example, it's like if I have someone come up to me and they're like, hey, uh, were you intentionally trying to wink at me across the room? I know that sounds like super, <laughs> super awkward, maybe cringe, as my sister says, you know, cringe moments. But I'd rather be much clearer about our communication than kind of assume a certain intent that may or may not be confirmed and then maybe put someone in an uncomfortable or in this instance with B, you know, a harmful situation. I'd also be remiss if I did not mention um, kind of the, this bystander communication options that we have if we ever perceive someone to be having an experience like B in a public setting. So for many years, I worked with the U.S. Army and I did sexual assault prevention work. And we always ended our trainings with the soldiers talking about how they can intervene as a bystander. And again, a lot of this requires people to get over themselves, over their ego, over this idea of like being uncool if you're trying to help others out. But I think this is so important. So the three different types of communication bystanders have at their disposal, if they see someone like B, you know, clearly maybe uncomfortable at a bar, uh, maybe being hit on by somebody who's just being way too aggressive, uh, just way too much. So we have direct communication, distracting communication, and then delegating communication. So direct communication, going up to someone like B and saying, hey, are you okay? Is this person making you feel uncomfortable? Again, I know not everyone's going to feel safe doing that, uh, given many different factors of their identity and maybe the situation that they are in, but that's an option available for people. Number two is to distract. You go up to B and you go, hey, I haven't seen you in years. Remember we went to high school together? How you been? You know, let me buy you a beer. Come on over here and sit next to me. So creating an intentionally fake situation to distract that other person and maybe get them out of harm's way. The third option is to delegate. If you, for any reason, feel uncomfortable kind of directly going up to a situation and either distracting them or directly confronting what is happening, you can always delegate to people who have more authority than you in that situation. So in this case, if someone's at a bar, the bartender, if there's security there, uh, or just any other kind of group of people. People are much uh, more likely to be listened to and kind of have a commanding presence if they 
walk in with a group of people. So like if you personally by yourself feel uncomfortable intervening in a situation, maybe that B was in, uh, maybe you can ask like a group of people who are welcoming to you and say, hey, you know, I think someone's uncomfortable over there. Would you mind helping me help them out? I know, especially with a lot of younger people, there's a lot of there's a lot of pushback against these options of helping people out because it's awkward and maybe you find out you're wrong, like worst case scenario. And I also have a personal story about that that I'd like to share. I always like telling this to my students because it, I think it's it's so important to kind of confirm maybe these worst case scenarios where it's like, what if I intervene? You know, I think someone's being uncomfortable or if they're in a harmful situation and I find out that I'm wrong. So I was taking the train in Phoenix from the airport after a work trip where I literally teach sexual assault prevention. And so I was like, you know what? I have to talk the talk and walk the walk. So I'm on the train and I see a who I perceive to be a woman um, being cornered by this, who I presume to be a man. And every single nonverbal cue she's giving me tells me that she's uncomfortable. You know, she's cowering. She's turning her back towards this guy. She's not making eye contact with him. And then he's kind of making himself much, much bigger, kind of an overbearing physical presence over her. So the alarm bells are going off in my head. And I'm like, you know what? I have to I have to say something to her. So I walk over to the situation and I say, you know, excuse me, miss, um, you look uncomfortable. Is this man making you uncomfortable? And she looks at me and she's like, no, I'm fine. And then both the man and the woman laugh at me. And I said, okay, no problem. Just want to let you know that I'm here for you if you feel uncomfortable. And so when I tell this story to my students, I ask them, you know, was this embarrassing for me? And they always answer yes. And then I confirm, yeah, that was embarrassing. How long was I embarrassed for? like five seconds, 10 seconds, maybe two minutes if you really know me. (laughs) But I'd rather feel embarrassed for two minutes and then, you know, kind of having peace with myself and knowing that I tried, I found out I was wrong. And that is such a much better progression than not doing anything and then finding out that somebody, you know, was hurt or was in the process of being hurt at that exact moment. I just think we have an obligation to care for other people. And especially in this world of dating, you know, we want people to have safe encounters. And so feeling convicted and feeling uh, having the initiative to want to help out people in B situation, I think, is one way that we can kind of create a safer world for people, hopefully. Anyway, thank you for listening to my uh, my rant. B, again, I am so sorry you went through this. I wish you healing. I wish you peace. I wish you much better dating experiences in the future where your safety, your bodily autonomy and your consent is prioritized and valued. Before going into our next bad date story, I'd like to turn the floor over to our sponsor, Aged and Infused. Do you love making cocktails at home? Do you love supporting small businesses? Well, then you got to check out Aged and Infused, friends. The Chicago local business crafts delicious, all-natural alcohol infusion kits that help you craft a better drink come happy hour or any hour. With locally sourced ingredients like oranges, cinnamon, cranberries, and cloves, these kits make a delicious addition to any home bar. Just add your favorite spirit, wait three days, and voila, happy hour is here. Visit agedandinfused.com to shop the full line, explore cocktail recipes, and more. Cheers, friends. Now, before we go on to our second bad date story, I'd like to bring us back all the way to episode one, if you've been listening that long. And if you have... Thank you very much. (laughs) I think in the first or second episode of this podcast, I said, you know, I shared my own personal bad date experiences. And I said, you know, who knows, maybe sharing other people's bad date experiences will help me remember more bad date experiences of my own. And wouldn't you know it, that's exactly what has happened. I wish it was on the happier haha side of, you know, the bad date spectrum. Uh, But unfortunately, you know, after having read B's email, it reminded me of my own personal experience with uh, sexual assault on a date with somebody. And so that is the story that I'd like to share. I won't go into too much detail. 
because there's a lot I could say about this particular person and this relationship that I was in, but I'll, I'll keep it kind of concentrated to the one of the times where sexual assault was involved in this relationship. So this story is about when I was dating someone in high school. I was 14 years old. He was 17 years old. I find it important to kind of note these age differences because with that comes a lot of power and authority with that. So again, 14 years old. This person was the guy who I had my first kiss with. And I don't know about anyone else, but when I was 14 and dating and in my first romantic, well, I guess technically my second romantic relationship, but you know, kind of first really serious one, I only wanted to just go on dates and just like make out like really, really wholesome kissing, make out, you know, that was like all that my mind wanted, had space for. And that was not reciprocated. That was not shared with this guy who I was dating. To kind of fast forward and kind of contextualize this relationship specifically, it only lasted for about six months and it was abusive sexually, emotionally, very sparingly physically. This bad date story occurred probably in the first month of us dating. So new relationship energy, you know, really innocent excitement that I brought to the state. And so my boyfriend at the time said that he was going to take me to the movies. And I was like, yes, I love the movies. You know, he can drive. So he picks me up in his car and I get in and I think we're going to the movies. I'm super pumped. I can't wait to have this like cute date experience with my boyfriend at the movies. And I notice we're not going to the movie theater. Like he's not taking the turns that I expect him to. And so I'm thinking to myself, oh, maybe we're going to a different movie theater where there's some special deal that I don't know about. And he ends up pulling up to his house. And I remember having this moment being like, oh, did you forget something? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just forgot something. Let's go inside really quickly. And I was like, okay, no problem. So we go inside of his home and he tells me his parents aren't home. And I said, okay, thanks for telling me, I guess. And I'm not quite sure what happened after that, but Basically, he forced me to do sexual acts that I didn't want to, wasn't ready to do. And the whole time this was happening, I just remember thinking to myself, well, okay, I'll just do this for him. And then, you know, then we're going to go to the movies. Like, I, you know, I'm still excited to go to this movie. And I kept having that thought where it's like, hopefully we'll get to the movie. Hopefully we'll get to the movie. And I keep checking the clock on the wall and the time goes by and by and I realize we missed the movie and then I think to myself, oh, maybe there's a later showing that he wants to take me to and we never end up going to the movies. This experience, I can definitely quantify as a bad date. I thought we were going to go on a date to the movies. I had no idea he wanted to bring me back to his parents' home and to sexually abuse me. That wouldn't be the last time he did something like that, unfortunately, nor would it be the last time that I would experience sexual assault in my lifetime. But this was one of the formative experiences that I had with dating. You know, that really innocent, vulnerable excitement of going to the movies with somebody, which we can experience at age 14, age 40 and beyond, you know, to violate someone when someone else knows that they're so excited about, you know, what they thought this date was going to be, the expectations that we bring on to first dates or not even just first dates, dates in general, and to have that preyed upon. You know, I think back to B's language, an easy target. I was young. I was naive. He could easily, you know, create this fantasy where he was going to take me to the movies like all of my other friends were doing with their boyfriends. And I was so jealous of I had longed for that for so long to just have a cute movie date with someone who I was dating. So to connect this to research, clearly, again, this experience similar to bees is sexual assault, unwanted, coercive, physical sexual contact. 
And I guess one of the outcomes of this, my experiences with sexual trauma and sexual abuse was doing my thesis research on uh, the dating lives, the romantic love lives of sexual assault survivors. And very similarly to my own personal experiences, people who have experienced sexual assault when they are dating, when they are trying to find love again, have a lot of hesitancy with trusting other people, trusting the intentions, feeling like they have to be super on guard about what this person's going to do, whether it's expected or unexpected. And that's one of the themes that I found in my data, which was unpublished, much to probably my <laughs> my advisor's uh dismay. But nonetheless, that was one of the most important themes from my data from interviewing 25 sexual assault survivors about their dating lives after their assaults. And, you know, it makes me think about kind of these broader consequences that people have to live with after sexual assault and then dating, especially if that sexual assault happens within the context of a date. I think it, it is so heartbreaking to think about someone experiencing a sexual assault within a date or a romantic relationship and then having to move forward in the world, feeling hesitant about finding connection with others, feeling hesitant about receiving affection, hesitant about receiving safety from people. And I think it's really important to kind of talk about the dark side of dating and, and kind of these harmful consequences that can happen from sexual assault while dating, let alone just the pure trauma that it leaves someone with. You know, it affects how they move through the world. So I wanted to speak to that. And I also think that this experience brings up research that I've looked into about dating scripts and expectations. So the process of courting or dating, you know, if we think about in like the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, kind of the script that that follows was super clear. Like the man comes to the woman's home and this is always following a heterosexual script, but the man comes to the woman's home. They have a supervised date in kind of the parlor or the front room of this fancy home. I'm thinking of like Victorian era dating. Uh, and it's like this very calculated, very formulaic process of dating. With the invention of cars, this drastically changed. Cars and automobiles gave people the agency to kind of date outside of the home. While, of course, really adhering to these very strict gender roles where men or more masculine people are the ones kind of, I'm, I'm air quoting over here, in charge of the date, you know, in charge of how the date goes, what it progresses to. And then women or more feminine people are always kind of positioned as the more passive experiencers of these dates. Uh, you know, they go where the man brings them. They are having the doors open for them. Their dates are paid for. And one thing that appears in the research is that women or more feminine people are always perceived to be in control of how much sexual activity happens on a date. To which I say, mm, yeah, I don't know if I quite buy that, um, I guess in some cases. But, you know, if we look at my own experience, like I was giving signals that I did not want to do this with my boyfriend and yet it did happen. Something I think is really interesting to talk about in terms of dating scripts as it relates to gender is that the the age-old stereotypes are are confirmed in much research. And by age-old stereotypes, I mean when you ask men what they expect on a date with a woman, they're going to expect sex and physical activity and physical intimacy much more than women. One of the research articles that I've that I'm familiar with say that men typically have higher sexual expectations when the man initiates the date also, and also if alcohol is consumed as well. So there are so many kind of factors that go into creating these sexual expectations. And again, expectations, we all have them, but we have to clearly communicate what we expect so that our hopes aren't ruined or we end up disappointed or unfortunately 
potentially in a harmful, scary, painful, traumatic situation. One of my favorite research articles by Alksness and colleagues from 1996 uh, interviewed people about uh, what they'd expect to occur on a hypothetical good and bad first date. A good first date for men, they found, involved sexual activity, and the opposite is true for women. So that finding alone shows that people sometimes, not always, sometimes come in with these stark contrasting opposite expectations for what they think is going to happen on that date regarding sexual activity. One of their other findings found that women labeled a first date as a bad experience when their dates made premature sexual advances, maintained eye contact for too long, engaged in repetitive physical touch, and when the cost of the first date was split evenly. (laughs) That last finding, (laughs) we've come a long way since 1996. However, Maybe for some people, that's still a sign of a bad date if they had to split things evenly. I'm not in that camp, but I digress. Alksness and colleagues also found that men labeled a first date experience as bad when their date rejected their sexual advances. And finally, uh, one of their last kind of main findings was that both men and women mutually agreed that a bad date involved people speaking at length about their ex-partner or when there was a lack of mutual engagement in conversation. So maybe someone who's just kind of steamrolling the conversation or on the opposite end of the spectrum, you know, only giving one or two word responses. That's just one of many research articles that really point to this age old trope of men having higher sexual desires than women while dating. That's a very binary approach. It's a very reductionistic approach to this. And and I want to create space for the world to encompass people who also experience no sexual expectations or desires at all in the world while dating. And also there's so much research that that really points to kind of this this discrepancy, you know, what people bring to these dates uh, in terms of sexual expectations. And again, I go back to this theme, which I touched on earlier about direct communication. If there is a point of the date where you expect something sexual to happen. Ask for consent. Talk about it. The worst thing that can happen is that you're rejected. And and this study shows that men found um, the rejection of their sexual advances to be a bad date. And if you have a bad date, that sucks. I'm sorry that happens. But do not make people feel violated. Do not make people feel uncomfortable. You go home, maybe you wallow in your own sorrows that your advances were rejected, and then you move on. Direct communication about all aspects of dating is so important but especially when it comes to our sexual expectations. And I think sexual expectations is kind of relevant or could be relevant to both stories that I've shared today, where people were clearly at different ends of the spectrum for what they sexually expected to occur in that given situation. I could spend a whole different episode talking about how difficult it is for the other person to say no or to reject someone's advances. I know, I know advocating for direct communication is one option that's available you know, not always going to be a safe option for people. However, if anything, one of the main things I want to advocate for in this podcast episode is the option to normalize direct communication about expectations, about boundaries, about feeling uncomfortable, and for people to not perceive that as something that warrants harming other people. Can we have negative reactions to being rejected? Yes, of course. It sucks to be rejected. Humans do not like that experience. But that doesn't mean that we use that negative reaction to harm somebody else. And that's where I kind of want to leave this conversation. So in the world of dating, we bring so many expectations. Sometimes we think we're following a very clear-cut script of how we think dating should go. For example, one person initiates, they plan a date, maybe there's some kissing, maybe it ends with a future plan for interaction. And so kind of those are the large scripts that we're operating under. And then I think it gets even more nuanced when we add in multiple layers of people's identity. One of the biggest ones, which again came up in these two stories, is gender. 
and how we perceive other people to be either open or vulnerable to people being preyed upon for sexual gratification of others in a non-consensual way. I think sexuality is important to consider as well. I think race is important to consider as well, class status, ability status, etc., etc. So again, I hope discussing these two bad date stories helps remind people of the nuance and, and complexities within communication while dating, both for verbal communication and nonverbal communication, and wanting to be especially attuned to both while we are dating, both for ourselves and other people, and also knowing how to pick up on cues, whether confirmed or not, if someone is uncomfortable in addressing that. Again, I think direct communication in situations where there is some ambiguous communication happening or miscommunication happening is only one solution that may not be accessible to all people in those scenarios. But I do think it's important to talk about experiences where people are unfortunately violated, harmed, traumatized, while dating. To really just speak truth to those experiences and labeling them for, for what they are as trauma and also wanting to kind of give validation to other people who might have similar experiences. The whole discourse actually, this is really interesting, the whole discourse about bad dates, how we kind of either confirm that somebody had a bad date experience comes from these rape myths. So uh, one article that I, I read talked about kind of the history of bad dates and for so long, even till today, but especially more so back in like the 50s, the 60s, when women were having these experiences of being sexually assaulted on dates, when they would share those experiences with other people, it would be relabeled to them as saying, oh, well, you just had a bad date. That's just a bad date when that happens. And, you know, as a society, we've grown more aware of sexual assault as a pervasive problem in many arenas of life, dating being one of them. And yes, bad dates can encompass sexual assault. But dismissing someone's trauma as only a bad date reduces what they are feeling, which is trauma, to just being something that, you know, people should get over. And that's not a realistic expectation to ask of people who have been harmed in such a, an intimate way. So yes, bad dates are complex. They can range from just innocent misunderstandings, awkward encounters, and on the other side of the spectrum, harm, terror, and trauma. And so thank you for being here with me today to hold space for the darker side of dating, the more harmful side of dating, I think it's important to speak to, and I appreciate you all being here. As I said earlier in the episode, if listening to these bad date experiences has reminded you of your own personal experience with a bad date that involved sexual assault, or or maybe not sexual assault, you know, maybe something more on the, the lighter side of bad date stories, it would be my honor to hold space for your story and to process it using the latest communication research and theories. So again, if this episode has made you think about your own personal bad date stories and you'd like to share them on the podcast and have them analyzed by me, please email them to thedateescapepodcast at gmail.com. Once again, please submit your bad date stories by emailing thedateescapepodcast at gmail.com. I also want to try something a little new. I am currently looking for more bad date stories to analyze. I know there are so many bad date stories that I can analyze on Reddit, and that's a path that I might take in the future. But also, if you maybe don't feel comfortable sharing your bad date story with me, or you don't have one, but you do have a dating question that you'd like me to address using communication research, it would be my honor to uh, kind of theorize with you about that question. So this is my open call for listeners to send in their dating questions. Any dating questions are welcome, open to interpretation, and I will do my best to address your questions using the latest communication research. You can think about this as kind of like an evolved newspaper advice column, you know, like a dating advice column. We're doing it in podcast form. 
And again, it's not solely going to be my own personal opinion, although that may creep up from time to time. But it is my hope that mainly the answers and advice that I give come in the form of being grounded in the latest research in the fields of communication and beyond. Because again, I am doing my prospectus right now for my dissertation, and I am just up to my ears in reading research articles about dating. So allow me to make this more of an applicable skill that I have to others beyond me. So happy to share my expertise. At least that's what I hope I'm creating. I think I'm becoming an expert. Who knows? We'll see. Also, if you enjoy listening to this podcast, it would make my heart sing if you would leave a rating and review wherever you listen. And also, I thank you in advance for giving me a rating and review for this podcast as it will help me reach a wider audience. Also, tell your friends, tell your family about this podcast. And again, if you or someone you know has any bad date stories they want analyzed on this podcast, please have them emailed to thedateescapepodcast at gmail.com. The same goes for any dating questions that people might have. Please email them to thedateescapepodcast at gmail.com. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for hanging in there with me on this more intense, kind of heavier episode. I appreciate you all sticking with me here. While I never wish bad date experiences upon anybody, if you do find yourself in a bad date experience, always remember to look for the exit signs in case you need to make the date escape. Thanks, everyone. I'll see you next time.